they always sound like they're the perfect amount of drunk. <laughs> right, exactly, yes. Like, just they just hit that flow state of drunkenness, <laughs> and you catch them in an hour, and it's going to sound like shit, but right now it sounds fantastic. Hello, hello, and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and guys who complain about everything under the sun get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We are going to give background on the artist leading up to this album, talk a bit about the recording, do deep dives on individual tracks and at the end vote and tell you whether or not you really do need to hear this album before you die. This week, very excited to be talking about the album by the band called The Band, Music from Big Pink. Now before we go throw it around the room and get our tweet length reviews in, we are going to give you an idea of what we have been listening to this week and I am going to play a bit of the biggest hit off of this album, by a mile. It is the song The Weight. Excellent. Now you know what we have been listening to this week. If you didn't think you were familiar with the band or this album, I guarantee you you've heard this song. So, by way of introduction, I'm going to throw it around the room and get those tweet-length reviews, and I am going first to Adam. Hey, everybody. This is Adam. Very excited to talk about the album this week. My quick tweet is that Bob Dylan stops by in an attempt to ruin the band's debut album with the worst album cover I've ever seen. Other than that, this is a remarkably well-rounded 70s album that just so happens to be from the 60s. All right. All right. Thank you very much, Adam. <laughs> Strong words. we got to come back to that, right? <laughs> all right. We're going to go to Rob. We'll, we'll dive into the tweets later, but we're going to go to Rob now for his missive. Thanks, Tom. This is Rob here, excited to talk about the band's music from Big Pink. Here's my tweet-length review. From the relaxed swing of the opening chords to the haunting strains of the perfectly written closer the band's rough and ready harmonies shine a light on the intense brotherhood of banddom serious question did america even exist before the band invented it <laughs> <laughs> all right and this is Tom. I'm going to be leading this journey where we learn everything there is to know about the band and my tweet length review is have you ever gone house hunting and you see a house that's like a little outdated, 
maybe a little bit run down on the inside, but you can tell it has really good bones. That was what I was thinking about while listening to this album. Even the songs that are not executed perfectly are impeccably written, and there is a great song hiding in every single track on this album. Now, maybe it's done by the band, maybe it's done by somebody else, but there's always a great song. Nice. All right. Let's let's swing into our general impressions. How was the week? For me, this was kind of a, an interesting week. I was not very familiar with this album. I knew two tracks off of it, and that was about it. I wouldn't say I was intimately familiar. I definitely heard it in the past. I owned a CD copy of it at some point in the past, but I think the one I have spent a lot more time listening to is the follow-up that has Night They Drivel Dixie Down on it. So definitely was more familiar with that one. But I actually kind of hope you guys are coming with some snark, maybe Adam, because I feel like I'm going to be gushing over what this band, (laughs) and not even this record, but what the concept of this band I think has meant to me musically, this kind of loose, tight Americana adding back to the canon of American songs that just feel like those songs have just existed forever after they slip out of your pen. To me, the band embodies that, plus the idea of friendship. I think the tightness of these relationships comes across in the music so loud and clear, and it just feels like a mirror, foolishly perhaps, to my own life. It just feels very relatable. There's something about the way they do the vocals and just the way their voices interconnect and overlay on each other that I do get that friendship thing, Rob, that you're talking about. But for me... I am super unfamiliar with the band. Never heard this album. I know The Weight and maybe what the Cripple Creek, I think is like their other big hit, big radio hit, I'll say. But other than that, I was very unfamiliar with this, similarly to how I was unfamiliar with the Grateful Dead's album. And it's funny thinking that this predates the Grateful Dead's turn to that Americana style by a couple years. I think it you know, at this point, the dead being a touch point in 68 was still doing their psychedelic, long hippie jam thing. So the fact that the band is potentially a progenitor of this Americana thing uh, is very cool. So yeah, I really enjoyed the week and overall a great album. I do have a couple nitpicky things, but yeah, Rob, there's not a ton wrong with this album. There's a lot right with this album. Well, and I'm sure Tom's going to follow up his comment, but I mean, he made a great point in his tweet length review that it is like a rundown house, but there's just some undeniable charm to everything about it. So in, in a sense, there's plenty wrong with it, but that's besides the point. That's the beauty of it, potentially. Right. Yeah, it is completely besides the point that they pay no attention to matching cadences when they have multiple singers at all. They never care about matching <laughs> cadences. <laughs> right, right. And it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter when you have these just amazing kernels of creativity that went into these songs there's not a whole lot you can do to mess it up. And Rob, I'm going to disappoint you here because I'm not going to have a whole lot wrong to say about this album. <laughs> I had a hard time picking a low light to, for us to talk about. And it really came down to the super nitpicky reason to even pick a low light on this album. I will amplify that, though. I, if there's a nit to pick, I will find it. Oh, yes. Adam, Adam is the master of the nits here. But <laughs> let's just talk about, for a second, the songwriting that went into this album. I mean, you got Robbie Robertson, who is just a killer songwriter. And he wrote The Weight, which is 
a classic and it sounds like it has existed forever and they were singing it in the Civil War. (laughs) (laughs) Then you got Richard Manuel, who is writing just amazing songs. And I'm not going to go ahead and say that Danko is uh, as good of a songwriter as them, but he's still writing better songs than I would ever have any hope in my life of writing. And then you got Bob Dylan coming into the mix (laughs) and just throwing some lyrics out there. Hey, I've heard of him. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's kind of an unimpeachable album. Like you said, it's very ironic that this has this Americana feel and they're mostly Canadians, which I was oh, no way. surprised to learn this week that they're almost entirely all Canadians, but it does have this just a folksy quality to it. I one time went on a hike with my wife. We went up to Bodega Bay area, went on a big, long hike. And then we came back into town. We'd hiked like 12 miles or something. So we're very tired. And we just wanted to get some lunch. And we went into this local pub slash restaurant. And they sit us right in the middle of this room. And what they don't tell us is that this is apparently the weekly jam session where a bunch of dudes whose median age is like 67 years old (laughs) got together with mandolins, guitars, and ukuleles and just belted dead songs at the top of their lungs for an hour and i had a headache already and i was so annoyed by it (laughs) but the band is the reason why a bunch of guys in their late 60s think that you can just get together with your friends and jam and sing along and it's gonna sound good it'll work and it'll just work (laughs) and it doesn't just work it didn't work for them trust me definitely did not work for them but i can get why you would think it would because it seems so effortless it really does just seems like it just naturally kind of all came together and there wasn't the years of work that went into it. As we will learn, there were definitely years of work that went into it. You don't just happen upon this, like you said, Rob, loose, tight aesthetic where the music is excellently executed and you know the other people's singing styles and approaches so well that you can play off of each other perfectly. It seems like almost like an accident but it certainly wasn't an accident but it has that effortless quality to it you were speaking about gushing over this album so i'll i'll, I'll give my little disclaimer up front prepare for gushing about the hammond organ <laughs> on this album oh, yeah. i, I mean, definitely did guys... not have that on my bingo card for tonight adam, <laughs> adam gushes about the hammond okay these guys know exactly where a hammond should be which is in nine out of the 11 songs that is the right spot for hammond on your 60s slash 70s they have a both a piano player and an organ player in the band so (laughs) yes yes yes. and they also a lot of times think that that organ should be at a nine out of ten volume (laughs) 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 wow that's that's pretty i think that you know i'm sure we're going to talk about all the people who were influenced by this especially by the ease with which it sounds like it was produced, the kind of relaxed nature of this recording, which I I don't think was common for the times. But one thing I heard Springsteen say in a somewhat recent Robbie Robertson documentary that I thought was very true about this band, he said, there's no band that emphasizes becoming greater than the sum of its parts more than the band. I really think that them individually is... I don't want to say nothing special because it's not quite right, but there's just something that happens when they come together that feels very, very special. One thing that I was very surprised by is that you hear this album and you picture 
that they get done a take and they open the door and they walk outside and there's a meadow and there's fawns traipsing through it and wildflowers and butterflies. This was recorded in Manhattan and L.A. (laughs) (laughs) That does not fit with the vibe of this album at all. But they somehow managed to take that upstate New York hermitage that they were in and translate that to tape in two of the most frenetic possible environments in the United States. So very cool. I have a whole lot of stuff to talk about with the background of this band, the band. But before we do that, we're going to jump very quickly into our by the numbers. And again, the band has another album on this list. So we are going to keep it relatively short here. First, Number 560,000, which is the verified number of copies that this album has sold, which is a lot lower than I would have thought it would be for you as said 560,000. Yeah, really? Wow, yeah. that does seem low. It's like a 20th of a kid rock or something <laughs> like that. Oh, just, god, it's the ridiculous. saddest and funniest stat I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. The next number that I have is. 436,600. And that is the Zestimate for 56 Parnassus Lane in West Sargates, New York, a.k.a. (laughs) the house known as Big Pink. So it's achievable. You could buy that house. I mean, it's not on the market, but you could buy that house. This is not something that would be out of the the range of possibility for a middle-class American to buy that house. And it is still painted pink. Number four is the number of members of the band that were essentially stolen away from other bands when they happened to open for Ronnie and the Hawks. More on that later. Total dick move. Is this the first super group? (laughs) And then the last number is just the number one, which is the number of band members that sound like Harry Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad Mike Cord has already come on the scene. (laughs) Rob, you you said that to me in high school, and I've never been able to not hear that. You're talking about the, wait a minute, Chester. I used to, James and I would say, wait a minute, Chester, to each other, like all the time back in the day. Alrighty, before we get into the background of the artist and all that good stuff, we are just going to throw a quick plea out to you. If you all could just rate and review this podcast, give us five stars, tell us that you like us, write a comment. It definitely helps. We're just trying to get some visibility here. We want to make sure that enough people hear what we're doing that we want to continue doing it. We love doing this every week. It has essentially become our new hangout. We'd love to have you guys along for the hangout. So if you just want to rate, review, tell a friend about it, that would be fantastic. And we do have a Patreon. If you want to go, there's a link in the description of this episode. You want to go throw us a couple bucks? We'd love it. Buy us a beer or two while we put together all of the research for this album. We would certainly appreciate it. We're still going to keep giving you all the great content, whether you subscribe or not. But any subscriptions would, of course, be appreciated. And we got some merch if you want to click on that link and go ahead and buy a t-shirt. We get a couple of bucks and you get to look pretty damn suave in your 1001 Album Complaints t-shirt. Enough of the plugs. Let's get into the background of the band. We're going to start with one Mark Levon Levon Helm. He's born in Arkansas in 1940. 
He grew up in a place called Turkey Scratch, Arkansas, <laughs> which is the middle of effing nowhere. I'm sorry. Did you say Turkey Scratch? I said Turkey Scratch, Arkansas. We all reckon we should call this new town. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, town is probably a pretty grandiose word. I think that there's just a church. That might be the only thing that is in Turkey Scratch proper. But it is located in an area known as the Mississippi Delta, which is famous for its long history of underclass, mostly black farm workers who turned their centuries of systematic oppression into a form of music known as the Delta Blues. So Helm is poor. Just like most of the people in the area, he's definitely very poor, but he got a early musical education. His parents were apparently big boosters of music, and they encouraged him and his siblings to play music. And so at the age of eight, he starts playing the guitar and the drums. And I think that part of it is music is somewhat free entertainment. If you're super poor, but you can afford sure. to buy your kid a guitar one time, then that's it. Kind of forever. You don't have to buy the albums. Right. He can just learn the tunes and be your entertainment. Yeah. So it's early 1950s. Levon Helm is young. He's super into the Delta blues. He also is listening to the new genre of blues, electric blues. Also listen to a lot of country and kind of old-timey Americana music. So early 1950s, Turkey Scratch, Arkansas, which geographically is not that far away from Memphis. It's not like he's going to Memphis all the time, but Memphis is an achievable distance from his house. So he is essentially exposed to some of the earliest iterations of rock and roll because they would play in these areas kind of all around Memphis. And so they'd go into Arkansas and they play these honky tonks and they play these roadhouses and stuff like that. So he is seeing Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, Sonny Boy Williamson. Apparently, Sonny Boy Williamson was the band for this program called King Biscuit Time. If you guys will remember in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the Coen Brothers movies, Pass the Biscuit, Pappy O'Daniel, was based off of this King Biscuit Time radio hour that they would put on. And Sonny Boy Williamson was the band for that. And Levon said that he would go to Helena, Arkansas... Not that far away from Turkey Scratch. That was his entire goal for the week, to make it to Helena, Arkansas. And then they would just let him walk into the studio while they were recording, and he would sit in the side and just watch Sonny Boy Williamson play. Wow. And he became obsessed with the blues and with wanting to be a part of that music scene. So, you know, he's getting this musical education by just by virtue of proximity to a lot of these acts and the time that he's living in. He's playing around town primarily as a drummer. He also does play guitar, but he's playing around town as a drummer. He starts his first band when he's still in high school called the Jungle Bush Beaters. (laughs) Interesting name. But while he's playing around in the Jungle Bush Beaters, he gets a very fateful call from one Ronnie Hawkins, a man that he had just recently met. Now, Ronnie Hawkins, he's a guitar player, but mostly a singer and front man who'd been playing around the Delta for a while doing basically rockabilly stuff. He is trying to make a name for himself. Eventually, he gets a call from Sun Records. Sun Records, you will remember from the Elvis episode, Memphis-based record label 
I mean, like Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, all these kind of early rock and roll guys of both colors. I know I just named two white guys, but there were also people of both colors that were recording for Sun. And so Ronnie Hawkins gets this call and they say, hey, we need a band leader for our in-house band. And so he packs up all his stuff and he moves to Memphis. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who aren't Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash's Sandinista? Then Discography's the new podcast for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Our friend Dave Gebro and the guest explore an artist or band's entire recorded output and rate everything from zero to five stars. Some of the show's many amazing guests have included Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow rating the zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter rating their own work, Mike Watt rating Minutemen, Anthony Fantano on the Velvet Underground, and Bob Mayer on The Replacements. He's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available. Wherever podcasts are consumed, we recommend you subscribe and listen. He says, by the time he gets to Memphis, he gets there and they say, actually, the band just broke up. We don't need you anymore. <laughs> He's like, okay, well. <laughs> this is probably on a steamer train for seven yeah. weeks or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was on the, like a mule cart. There. <laughs> but Ronnie Hawkins is a man of purpose. And so he says, fuck it, I'm going to start my own band. And he starts recruiting musicians. And he had just recently met Levon Helm. And so he calls up Levon, or I don't know if Levon even had a telephone. He gets in touch with Levon, and he says, maybe he sends him a telegraph or something like that. <laughs> Carrier pigeon. And he says, hey, man, I need a band. I don't have a drummer. You want to be the drummer? And Levon says, basically, like, when do we leave? Like, when do I get the fuck out of Turkey Scratch, Arkansas? I just want to, I <laughs> sure. want to be gone. And Levon's mom says, no. You cannot go yet because you're about to be the first person in the history of our family to ever graduate from high school. Oh, <laughs> so you need to finish oh, high school. And I watched a documentary where both Ronnie and Levon were joking about like, yeah, that high school diploma from Turkey Scratch is going to get me real far. That was going to be it. That was going to be it was going to change my life here. Thank God I stuck around for that. If you did have a, di a diploma from Turkey Scratch, it would just still look like it was a fraud. You take that anywhere. Be like, really? Where's Turkey Scratch? Is that yeah. does your like, girlfriend from Canada have it? Like that. <laughs> so Levon is apparently actually good enough, though, that. Ronnie Hawkins is like, okay, I'm going to put my plans on hold. We'll play around here instead. We'll just keep playing this kind of super poor rural circuit until you graduate from high school, and then we're going to try to go make our fortune. It sounds like they're playing all the time. He's playing shows on the weekends. They're playing these roadhouses, these honky-tonks. But it does sound like they're actually getting really tight as a band, and Levon is leveling up his skills as a band. But I did see Carl Perkins who was talking about playing in these same kind of honky-tonks. And he was like, these places were rough, like really rough. He said, to this day, I play Les Pauls because you can hit a guy with your Les Paul and still be able to finish out the set. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> that's like, awesome. Fenders, you can't finish the set if you hit the guy with it. You hit a guy with the fender, set's over. You hit a guy with your Les Paul, you can keep playing, though. That's <laughs> like, that's pretty fucking badass, actually. That's awesome, yeah. All right, so 
1958. Levon is 18 years old. He has graduated from high school. Ronnie Hawkins, he's like, I'm trying to make it big as a rockabilly singer. So what is the first step in your plan when you're trying to make it big as a rockabilly singer? You move to Toronto, Canada. Obviously. Of course you do. Yeah. Obviously. There is a playbook, people, and we just need to follow it. <laughs> just, exactly. Which, to hear him tell it, he said that the only things that he had ever seen were pictures of Canada and it was like the frozen north dog sled. He's like, these p- pictures are probably from like 1910, <laughs> like Arctic Circle. And that's what they thought they were going to. But they yeah. were enticed by a two-week contract with the option to renew it for another two weeks. And that was enough to get them to say, let's move from Arkansas to Canada. To the tundra, because they think they're going to play for the dog sleds and the Iditarod and stuff. Yeah, it's like Nanak of the North. (laughs) Levon, can you hit that bass drum wearing a snowshoe or what? (laughs) (laughs) But they were all down, and apparently it worked out quite well for them. So Ronnie is telling the story about them getting up there, and nobody had ever heard this sound before. And he said that they would do these little three-night stands at clubs. He said, night number one, there'd be like five people there. Night number two, it'd be about half full. Night number three, there's a line out the door of people trying to get in. Oh, that's awesome. He's like, we would do that. We would just play around all the clubs, and then it would happen. And then we'd come back again, and it's line out the door on night one. And by all accounts, it was really a kind of a bombshell for that scene it was a it was this delta blues rockabilly southern sound that canada had not experienced before sure and they get a lot of buzz they sort of start getting a lot of good gigs they get a record contract they record some singles they have a they have a few hits they get on a dick clark's american bandstand they're on television people back in turkey lick arkansas are probably going down to the five and dime and watching the television play through the window or something like that. They certainly don't have TVs. I assume Turkey Lick is the rival town. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You're right. Turkey Scratch. My bad. Turkey Lick. Those bastards over there. It's the Shelbyville, Arkansas. (laughs) But they're up there and they're playing around, but it is still the club scene. And so they're losing members. Levon's all in. Levon loves it. But they are losing members as they're doing it because there's not a lot of money in it. They're getting cred, but it's cred in the Canadian scene. And no offense, Canada, but your your market is just the tenth the size of the U.S. So it is not the same <laughs> kind of fame you would get if they were in New York or if they were in L.A. or something like that. Tell that to the tragically hip, Tom. Or the, the guess who? who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the guess who came to America and then wrote songs about American women. All right, there you go. Like right. Diff- different playbook. <laughs> yeah. So they're a quartet at this point. They're kind of grinding it out, and they kind of start to lose some members. And this is where Levon Helm meets one Jamie Royal Robertson. Known as Robbie Robertson, he's born in Toronto in 1943. So he's a few years younger than Helm. So at this point, Helm's like 18, 19. And so he's like, you know, 15, 16 when they meet. And Robbie Robertson is super into this sound. He really wants to join this band. He's like following them around, but he's also in a band called the Swades. And so the Swades are playing some shows opening for Ronnie and the Hawks, which is the band that Ronnie Hawkins had put together. And after a couple of shows where they're opening, he goes to Robbie Robertson and he says, Hey man, I think you're pretty good. He's playing guitar. 
He's like, why don't you come play the bass in my band? And Robbie Robertson's like, yes, absolutely. That's that's exactly what I want to do. Leaves the Swades, goes and replaces the bass player in the Hawks who had just left. Now, apparently, Robertson is pretty brash. And he tells Fred Carter, who is the guitar player in the band, he's like, I'm going to take your job, by the way. <laughs> I'm just coming to let for you. Know, <laughs> I'm going to take your job. That is ballsy. And Fred Carter was like... Oh, fuck you, kid. He's 17 at this time. Right. It's like, fuck you, kid. Damn. But then he starts hearing him play guitar, and he's like, then I start, when I would play on stage, I would turn away from him so he couldn't he see could. what I was doing with my hands because he was just picking up on what I was doing. And so Keep that secret sauce secret, man. Yeah. But lo and behold, 1959, guess who takes over as the lead <laughs> guitar player of the Hawks? It is Robbie Robertson. Fred Carter is out the door. Robbie Robertson is now the guitar player for the Hawks. So we have in the Hawks, Levon and Robbie Robertson. Robbie's on guitar. Levon's on drums. Shortly thereafter, they meet a man who is described as an apprentice butcher named Rick Danko. (laughs) Great name. All these guys have great names, actually. (laughs) They do really have great names, yeah. So Danko is a native of Ontario. He's the same age as Robertson. So he's like 17, maybe about to turn 18 at the time. And Rick has seen Ronnie and the Hawks several times, blown away by their sound. Again, just nothing he'd ever heard of before. Thinks it's fantastic. He goes out of his way through a lot of effort to get his band, The Starlights, booked as an opener for five Hawks shows. And again, at the end of the fifth Hawks show, guess who comes and knocking? Ronnie says, hey, why don't you come join my band instead? We need a bass player and steals the bass player from the Starlights. This is now two guys that he has stolen away from other bands shamelessly. No shame in his game, apparently. And apparently the Rick Danko says, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to have happen. Fantastic. I'm going to leave my band and now join your band. So we got Helm, Robertson, and Danko. They are all in the Hawks. They're playing around the London area. Not in the UK. London is a city in southern Ontario. And there is a band called the Capers with a K that is opening for them. And in the Capers is a keyboardist named Gareth Hudson. Can I guess what happened? <laughs> he's also from Ontario. He's he's older, though. So he's about six years older than Danko and Robertson, about three years older than Helm. And Hawkins comes up to him and he says, hey, man, I think you're pretty great. Why don't you come and join my band? And Gareth Hudson says, no, that's a dick move. What are you trying to steal me away from my band? Like, this is my band. I'm not going to leave. And Hawkins, again, a man of purpose. He does not take no for an answer. So this is like June of 1961 that he is pressuring him to join the band. And Hudson doesn't agree to join the band until late December of 1961 and the only way that he agrees to join the band is if every member of the band agrees to pay him ten dollars a week to give them music lessons whoa damn (laughs) which is a that is also a dick move like listen i will only join if i can make you better because you guys suck and i just can't i can't listen to you play anymore that's funny because you just got through telling us how great these other players were but they must there must have been quite a gap right <laughs> i think that it was more that garth hudson had a lot of music theory right. knowledge classically trained and these guys were just road dogs yeah. who were just playing Makes sense. yeah and as a, as a keyboard player you're gonna like a piano player you're gonna have a lot more 
harmonic theory knowledge. Well, I think he also plays, he gets a horn credit on this too. So he was a multi-instrumentalist, right? Yeah, he knows his stuff. He definitely knows his stuff. And he also knows how to negotiate because he also convinces Hawkins to buy him a Lowry organ as part of his bounty for joining the band. So not only is he making an additional like 40 bucks a week, more than everybody else in the band, gets a free organ out of it. They're buying him gear as well. That's... Yeah, it's pretty good. So very shortly thereafter, again, playing another gig. And who does Ronnie Hawkins hear? He just hears the voice of this guy, one Richard Manuel. And he's like, I need that guy in my band. That guy's got a fantastic voice, angelic voice. So Richard, he's the same age as Danko and Robertson. He grows up singing with his three brothers in a church choir. Same kind of stuff. He's playing in a bunch of projects, eventually kind of coalesces into the Revels, and they end up opening for Ronnie Hawkins, and he poaches them away. So we now have Levon Helm, Robbie Robertson, Richard Manuel, Garth Hudson, and Rick Danko in the band. So this is now the official coalescing of what is known as the band. They're not known as the band at the time, though. But when you think of the band, this is now that that nugget that has been formed. It's 1961. They are the backing band for Ronnie Hawkins. And by all accounts, Ronnie Hawkins is an insane taskmaster. When it comes to his band, he's pulling the James Brown shit. He's finding them. Docking you pay for, me- oh man. Docking pay for messing Oof. up, for bringing girls to the show, it's stuff like that. He not only would be very critical of their playing, he would routinely, after a show did not go as good as he thought it should go, convene an all night practice session Jesus. after the show to practice the set again multiple times. So you get done playing a set, and he'd walk off stage and be like, we sounded like shit. We're going to go practice right now. And they'd play all night long. That's pretty intense. And that's super intense. <laughs> and frankly, I would hate that. <laughs> like, after a show, the one thing you want to do is just, like, have Sit, a beer yeah. and relax and not think about the things you messed up. I, I don't think that would be effective either, to be honest. I mean, it sounds like they got really, really tight because they were playing – in essence, like sometimes three times the amount of shows that they were playing. They were playing the set three times as many times because they'd have to do practices afterwards. Maybe that was fear of not wanting to do the after show practice that made them practice harder. Yeah, right. Everything I heard about Robertson is that he himself became that kind of taskmaster engine. And so I probably suited him to a certain extent to just be like pushing so hard to get better, right? Everyone said that Robertson played guitar 24-7. That's all that he wanted to do was play guitar. And I guess if you really want to play guitar all that much, having other people that are forced to play with you all that time is probably a lot better than having to do it by yourself. But the one thing that I found to be like really interesting about this is that this band is getting super tight in a couple of different ways. They're getting tight in terms of their musical proficiency, but they're also getting tight in terms of their interpersonal relationships. And I think a big part of that is probably the common enemy thing. Totally. That they're all looking at Ronnie Hawkins as this asshole, oh, but yeah. we're all the band and we're cool together. And this asshole over here is pushing us too hard. And he kind of formed this separateness between them. And then they formed into this inseparable group and eventually said, why the fuck do we need you? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's basically from 1961 to 1963, they are playing 
as the Hawks, backing Ronnie Hawkins as Ronnie and the Hawks. They're getting really tight, and eventually they have some creative differences, and they're basically saying, like, we are tired of playing these same goddamn songs. We're tired of playing the same style of music. We want to write original songs. We want to do more. Our horizon is higher than your horizon. I think Ronnie Hawkins was kind of satisfied with the level that he was at, and they were like, we think we can go to the next level. So 1963 comes along, and they make a split. They have a reputation as the best backing band in the scene. Everybody's like, these guys are tight. These guys are really good. They can hang with anything. And they have that sort of reputation as a backing band, but they don't have the reputation as their own entity. So they break from Ronnie Hawkins. They're out in the wind, and they're trying to find their formula. They become the Levon Helm sextet for a bit when they had a saxophone player. Didn't have much success with that. Drop the sax player, and they try to record some singles as the Canadian Squires. That doesn't really work out either. And they're like, all right, well, let's maybe kind of go back to the formula that we knew that worked for us before. And they start playing as Levon and the Hawks. But that doesn't really go anywhere either. They're not getting a whole lot of success. They're trying to figure out where they belong and how they can move this project forward. Levon ends up meeting Sonny Boy Williamson one of his heroes, and he's super stoked. Sonny Boy Williamson is like, yeah, man, you guys are really tight. You could totally be my backing band. I would love that. And they're like, dude, we found it. Like, we got this great classic blues guy. We're going to be his backing band. And then, like, two weeks later, Sonny Boy Williamson dies. (laughs) And they're like, "Uh, all right. Damn. Plan D at this point? (laughs) I'm like, I don't know what the hell we're going to do at this point. dude. So... Nothing's quite working, but they are still playing around a lot. But they're not breaking through like they hoped that they were going to break through. And then at the advice of, I think it was like the secretary of his manager, one Robert Allen Zimmerman comes to one of their shows. Professionally known as Bob Dylan. He's embarking on a tour of the United States to trot out his new style where he, everybody get ready to clutch your pearls, is going to play an electric guitar. (laughs) I mean, it it was a big deal at the time. I'm sure we're going to talk more about it, but it is funny to think now how pearl clutching that moment was, but it really was. That was the Newport Jazz Festival in what year? Well, this is like 65, and they are basically, this is what I hadn't thought about before. Bob Dylan up to that point, it's just him and a guitar on stage. He can kind of do whatever he wants. It's just, he doesn't have to have a backing band. But he's like, I'm going for this new sound. I need to put a band together. And so he is putting a band together. So what does he do? The always agreeable, never an asshole Bob Dylan decides that he wants to hire away Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm <laughs> from Levon and the Hawks. He wants to poach just those two? He wants to poach just those two. Wow. And have those two join his backing band. And they do it. They play two shows with him, and then after two shows, they go to him and they say, you know what, man? We're a package deal. You can't just take the two of us. If you want us, we will be your backing band, but we have to be the backing band. We have to be the band. And Bob Dylan says, yeah, all right. Sounds good. (laughs) Oddly. I had a bit of a rough couple weeks or whatever it was for Rick Danko and company. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. They're like, wait, wait, everybody's left us now. (laughs) We have nothing left to do. But they are then booked for his U.S. and world tour, which is like 1965, 1966. 
This is very famously the tour where everybody hated Bob Dylan's sound. People were pissed, screaming at him, booing him, very confrontational crowds, very hostile environments. And after one month of doing this, this has affected Levon Helm so much that he drops off the tour and goes to work on an offshore oil rig. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they were getting booed at every show, right? So that is... That was less stressful. Right. Yeah. Maybe this this music thing isn't for me. If uh, we can finally get the opportunity of a lifetime and everyone hates us consistently in every city. I better go do something where I have the possibility of losing digits and limbs on a daily (laughs) basis. This sounds like a fantastic career move for me. That's but crazy. I think it was literally just like I he got away from everybody. He was like, I'm going to be nowhere near other people. There's just like 15 guys on this rig that I work with, and they're the only people I interact what's, with. I think what's funny is that I got the impression from my understanding of Dylan and watching his movies and reading about him is that he was ready for this very adversarial reaction, and he was welcoming it to the crowd. You know, he gets up there at the Newport Folk Festival and people are calling him Judas and he's not only ready for it, he's like excited by it. And he like calls back to the band, like play it fucking loud. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, I don't know. It, it fueled his, his thing. So it's funny that those guys maybe just weren't ready for it at all. Or maybe just their personalities were like, we're just like really nice guys. They're Canadians. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, we're like, we don't, we like to make people happy. Why are, why are you getting so angry at us? But yeah, so Helm drops off and they grab another drummer and they continue to tour through 1955 and the first half of 1966. They're doing basically just the electric circuit with Dylan sucking in the hate and I guess getting fueled by it. At least Dylan's getting fueled by it. They're getting paid for it. So they probably are a little bit more accepting of it. It's a serious question. I know it's not a Bob Dylan episode, but how does that hate continue so long i still find it unf- i get the part where you're a folk fan and you buy a ticket to see bob dylan and in your mind you're picturing a guy with an acoustic guitar singing times there are changing and you get there and there's a full band but or, or maybe it wasn't even that maybe they build it as a band when you bought the ticket but what i'm saying is word got out relatively quickly right why are people still going to the damn show <laughs> These are the same people that, like, bring a tomato to a show to throw at the stage or something like that. Like, you came prepared to hate. And what did you expect? You got what you wanted, actually. If you came with that mindset, you wanted to hate. And you got exactly what you wanted. You should be happy. But it's a rough time for the band. It's a rough time for Dylan. And then things get a little bit rougher for Dylan because in late July 1966, Dylan has his famous motorcycle accident while on break from touring gets really fucked up and essentially decides he's going to go into seclusion in upstate New York while he is recovering. And the band is in the wind again. They had this gig back in Dillon on tour, and all of a sudden that tour is cut short, and the expected earnings that they were thinking was going to come in, not really coming in, and they are kind of wandering rudderless as thinking what they're going to do. That oil well's looking pretty good right now, isn't it, boys? <laughs> exactly, yeah. You get me a job, Levon? Ste- <laughs> Steady employment. Uh, you're making seven twenty-five an hour, man. That's not bad. <laughs> but Dylan, to his credit, he basically says, hey, guys, listen, I know I kind of, like, fucked you over with this whole thing here. Not, not I fucked you over, but, like, I thought that we had something good going on. Why don't you come to upstate New York? You can come and live here. 
and we'll just like work on some music together. And Helm is like, all right, this I can do. I'm going to come back to this project. I don't need to be in the Gulf of Mexico <laughs> drilling for black gold anymore. I'm going to come and do what I was born to do. I'm going to come and be a drummer again. They go back and Dylan and the band, they start working on some demos together, which famously are known as the basement tapes. These were like partially released in the mid 70s, but they weren't fully released until 2014. And it's just a bunch of demos that they were kind of banging out in the basement while Bob Dylan was in his sort of recovery phase and the band was thinking about how they wanted to move forward as a project. So I heard it slightly differently from the Robbie Robertson documentary I watched, which was that, yeah, they decided at the advice of a manager or something, hey, why don't you come up to upstate New York? Maybe when Dylan's better, you guys can work on some stuff, whatever. And they rent the famous house. And this is before Levon comes back. But they go ahead and they'd set up an ability to record in the basement. And they're just kind of jamming and having some fun and living together and rediscovering their love of music. And then they insist that Levon come back. He does. But I heard the story that Bob Dylan kind of shows up at the house one day somewhere in his recovery and goes, oh, you guys can like record stuff here? Is, is this sound good? And Robbie Robertson's like, yeah, yeah, it's all ready to go. Let's go down and start jamming. And then and then they sort of really get to work with it. I was condensing the uh, the story a little bit because I actually do think we need to talk about the music at some point. We're getting to that, <laughs> dear people. Rob always coming in with additional contacts, which we definitely love. I wanted to take a tangent on just how jacked up Dylan was because I don't know how bad he was in that accident. Like, was he able to like play guitar or was he full body cast with just the harmonica affixed to his right. mouth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> He had his hand free so he could write spiteful, angry lyrics at the time. <laughs> yeah, he's still writing at 700 songs a week, but you know. So anyway, they are in this house. They've rented it. It's the house known as Big Pink. They've rented this house. They're like, you know what? We should put out an album of our own. It's 1967. They start to work on the tracks that will become music from Big Pink. They're writing these over the course of 1967 and 1968. They go into the studio, one studio in Manhattan, another in L.A., over the course of 1967 and 1968. And they record music from Big Pink, which is released July 1st, 1968. We are finally at the album. Okay, can I ask a quick question, though? Because this where they were in upstate New York is pretty close to Woodstock, New York, right? Yes. And was this, in fact, the beginning of the Woodstock as an artsy, small community thing? Is that based 100% on Dylan just deciding to go there? And then obviously later the music festival would happen nearby. I don't have a great answer for that. My impression is that, yes, Dylan being there was this sort of pole of gravity that was pulling a lot of people to come there and visit there. Although Dylan is kind of in seclusion. He's not really looking to have a whole bunch of people just come and pop by and say, hey, what's up, Bob? How you doing? Sure. But just the idea that you might see Bob Dylan at the grocery store might be enticing to people in the mid-60s. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, that sounds pretty awesome to me. So either way, it has now become famous as this super artsy, super artistic enclave. And the fact that one of the greatest American albums of all time was named after a house that is still in that area. Cannot have hurt. Can I make one more observation? Because it's the first time we taped these a little ahead. But if you're listening to this now on the day it's released, it's actually Christmas Day. 
So Merry Christmas, guys. And I happened to be watching Charlie Brown recently, and I was wondering where the Woodstock name came from. And even though Charlie Brown Christmas came out in like 1965, I learned this weekend that Woodstock was was only given a name after the music festival came out. So there is a little tie in there. No way. Like he looks like he smokes weed. Let's call him Woodstock. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're at the album. We're at music from Big Pink. Let's jump into these songs. I'm very interested to talk specifics about these songs. We're going to start out with the first song on the album, the Richard Manuel and Bob Dylan penned Tears of Rage. pathos in the voice yeah i mean based upon the song title i was expecting something a little bit more up tempo <laughs> and maybe a little bit angrier and less just really sad a megadeth song is what you were expecting right <laughs> i am sure there's a ton of tears of rage songs out there that are talking about the aztec genocide or something like that <laughs> dude right out of the gate i mean within the first 15 seconds you've got killer guitar a hammond a piano, that beautiful melody, and the guy's voice. I mean, all within the first 15 seconds. Talk about the mission statement that we always talk about right out of the gate. This had me. This had me. Absolutely. It's so, I said it in the tweet, it's so relaxed right at the beginning. The way the music is being played, clearly with deafness and technical ability, but also with a kind of laid-back approach. And the lyrics... Even the title, just super evocative. right? You know what I mean? I think they pick really good, non-obvious song topics to cover. Let me, let me put that out there right away. This is about a father and a daughter. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I don't want to dissect. I, I didn't go too deep into the meaning, but I just think it's a topic you don't hear that often. I will say that 
the tone of the guitar hooked me instantly. It's so good and so weird. Like, I feel like I'm not hearing that tone on a guitar anywhere else, even in the era. It sounds very unique, and it, it's it got a weird, like, I know it's a modern way of producing that sound, but it sounds old. It just sounds like something old. I think they may have been running it through a Leslie at a really high mm-hmm. rate of speed, spinning that to give it that very tremolo-y kind of vibrato sound. That's what I, that's my guess would be on that. That's a really good call. I hadn't thought of the Leslie and what was creating that. But that vibrato sound that a Leslie speaker, which is a rotating speaker where you can change the speed of it, is it's such a good fit for this band in general. Because I feel like all their voices have that really nice oh, yeah. vibrato. Maybe yeah. save Levon, he's a little more straight ahead, but the other two guys are very vibrato focused. Is that a saxophone that comes in at like 144? Is that what that is? Is that the tenor sax? I think it is. And I noted that the horns kind of in the back half of the song are real tasty. Yeah, I was like, I don't know what that sound is, but it is perfect. It comes in at a great time in the song. I mean, I'm not going to continue to shit on Jamiroquai in future episodes, but we go back to the Jamiroquai episode where it's just everything's in all the time and just let things come in naturally. Let them add. And then you really get to notice when it comes in. You're just like, oh, that's beautiful. That is the thing that it was missing that I didn't realize I wanted. And the other thing is I'm always kind of fascinated with albums that start with like a really slow tune like this yeah it's not a normal mode for an album usually you kind of want to hook them right away and i did get hooked right away they they made a good choice but it didn't seem to be the obvious song to start the album with when i was looking at the different songs in the album it's a good point i think it was definitely against the grain at the time i mean i heard the quote not that this is such a great thing but i heard the quote that it made clapton want to quit cream and make more americana sounding music you know i think that it was normal for bands to not have to be hard or rock and roll all the time, but I think this aesthetic was definitely brand new, and you can detect that from the first few seconds of the recording. So this is the reason why we have Willie in the hand drive? <laughs> well, he said he wanted to go do Derek and the Dominoes, which to me is probably the most redeeming mm-hmm. of the Crapton projects. It is definitely the most redeeming of the Clapton projects by a million miles. All the solo clap and stuff they did later was pretty fucking garbage. I had a couple notes on the instruments in here. So you talk about that horn section, and there's something odd in it. It's hard panned left. Where's Phil when we need him? Hard panning, 60s. But there might be a clarinet in there. I feel like it's a trombone, potentially a clarinet, because it's just... It doesn't sound, not that it doesn't sound right, but it just sounds different from your standard horn section. So if there are any horn experts out there and you know what the horn section is made up of here, let us know. The credits say soprano and tenor sax. Yeah, those are the only horns on the album, soprano and tenor, according to the credits. Now, maybe they weren't taking great notes. I don't know. (laughs) There's also this thing that comes in at three minutes. And I don't know if it's that organ, Tom. What was the brand organ that you said that they bought the keyboard player? The Lowry organ? Yeah, maybe it's a Lowry, but it almost sounds like a pump organ. Like there's something there that it's not your standard Hammond that sticks out. It almost has like a synth pad Hmm. sound to it. And it really fills out that section really nice. Why must I always be the 
then my one complaint on this song is I hate the snare sound. It sounds like they took the snare off of the drum and it's just like puck, puck. I'm not <laughs> saying it has to be a metal snare, you know, but like if it just cut a little bit more, that's mm. like my one, potentially my only complaint on the entire album. And it came right out of the gate yeah. too. <laughs> Let's stay on that organ sound for a second. You're talking about that low attack swell thing that's happening, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was struggling. I wish the liner notes were were even deeper unless Tom has some more detail, but I don't. They're a little general for my taste. And yeah, he gets a lot of sounds out of these keyboards. I mean I know there's a clavinet on here somewhere. There's the organ obviously. There's piano, but I don't know. There seems like there's a lot of different styles happening. There's some something else. Yeah, right. It could potentially be that they are just doing sound manipulation on those and making them sound different. Could be. Pumping them through something, an effect or something like that. All righty. Let's move on. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Can I corroborate uh, Adam's snare drum thing? Sorry. I just wanted to give it a quick listen there. Yeah, you're right. It's not that good. They took the snares all the way off? What happened there? I don't know. It sounds like it because it just doesn't have a crack to it. It's very subdued and just... The crack would have been nice acoustically. It's funny because I have to mention, I don't normally think of how drums are recorded, especially on records like this, where that seems a little besides the point. But I have some notes about his bass drum Mm -hmm. approach later in the record and how that sounds. And I I like that sound. All right. Let's listen to a little bit more of the Robbie Robertson penned song, The Weight. Crazy Chester followed me and he caught me in the fall. Said I will fix your rat if you take Jack my dog. I said, wait a minute, Chester, you know I'm a peaceful man. He said, that's okay, boy, won't you feed him when you can? I was shocked that this wasn't a traditional. I really was. I was like, oh man, they actually wrote this song? This was there for the taking? Good Lord. Not even they. Robbie Robertson is an amazing (laughs) writer. He really is. Nothing (laughs) crazy. It's basically like three chords and a descend and simple harmony and killer lyrics. All you have to do is have great harmony and killer lyrics and good chords. That's all you need. That's it. (laughs) Good chords and a melody. That's it. And I think a really good, another really good song concept, which I want to dive into with you guys, because it feels they're telling a story in little pieces. You don't get the whole story, but you still, it paints a picture very effectively. But headline is, this is the perfect song about friendship. It's kind of the same subject matter territory as Lean On Me, I think. And not only is do I think that the song is about that, about taking the weight off of a friend, but additionally, the way it's arranged and sung amplifies that message. So interestingly, I read an interpretation of this that it was in essence complaining about Fanny putting the weight of checking in on all of these fucked up friends on him. And that's the weight that he is carrying is I got to go check up on all your fucked up friends in this goddamn town. Are you kidding wow. me? Like, 
Okay. That's interesting. I was starting to wonder, as I listened closer to the lyrics, if it was actually about small towners telling outsiders to literally go to hell. Yeah. I mean, they do talk about hell a decent amount in it. I think the mix here is so perfect. It really does sound like it was produced in a different studio. Not exactly by a different band, but something about Levon's voice. He's the lead singer on this one, as opposed to Richard Manuel on that first one. And I would say generally Levon sings less on this record than maybe even on future records. So, but it just, the the mix here is just so good. I think the bass drum sounds great. And it is, it's a mission statement for the band. I mean, we kind of already said that about the first song too. But the fact that you have these three voices, the fact that they switch up and give Danko that last verse that we already talked about. Levon sings all but the Danko verse. I was blown away by that fact myself. I really thought that Manuel was in there, but apparently it is Levon on all but the the Danko verse. Oh, I mean, I, I think I knew as a lead singer, but I, I meant the three-part harmony thing. Is that still two guys? No, 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 that's three guys. That's three guys. Yeah, that's Manuel in there doing the, the harmony with them. Well, something I just learned this week that's a fun little anecdote for where we grew up is Robbie Robertson, he said he got the inspiration for the song by staring at his Martin guitar. And inside the Martin guitar, it says it's built in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. That's right. Which is not too far from Philadelphia. In fact... I can't. I think Phil and I went. I'm not sure if we any of you guys went with us to the Martin Guitar Factory one time, but that that's the Nazareth he's referring to. And I thought that was cool. This was one where I had I've heard this song a trillion times on the radio, but I'd never done a good headphone listen. And there is a low end piano that's just going junk 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 in the left channel. That now that's all I hear, and I wish I hadn't heard it because now I'm like hyper focused. Whatever I heard it, then it's just <laughs> chomping along. So that was that was an interesting thing. And am I the only one who thought it was take a load off Annie their entire lives? Yes. I read the lyrics. I was like, Fanny, what what is this? I guess I was the only one. All of our British listeners are chuckling along at the name Fanny. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Take a load. Oh, my God. You're right. <laughs> I wasn't going there, but okay, Adam. I'm trying to keep this family friendly. Jesus. Adam, clearly with his filthy mouth and filthy mind, right. notorious uh, for that. Yes. Yes. This is, um, it's such a good song that, like you said, I've heard it a million times. I was never sad when it came up on the playlist. Never. Never sad when I heard it. Not a single yeah. time. Yep. Every time I'm singing along. It's a masterclass in songwriting. From the first, li- the first line is the whole story. I pulled into Nazareth. I was feeling about half past dead. I pulled in and yeah, that's it. That's I got it exactly. In Medius Ross, you're like, why, why are you feeling half past dead? What's going on here, man? Yeah, let me make up the story. Let me yeah. make up your backstory as I'm listening. Yeah, God, such a killer. And on the piano front, I love that they hold off that high piano. Until the chorus is, take a load. It's such a good layer. It's so simple. There's nothing complex about this song at all. Nobody's doing anything that, as an observer, you look at it and you're like, I could do that. Nobody's doing anything crazy here. I could do that. But you can't. You can't. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sad reality of it. The three of us could get together and try to do the harmonies in the song, and it just wouldn't sound as good. Right, right. Maybe this is too dark for you guys, but I think I fantasize about some day when we're at one of each other's funerals and we're just getting together around a piano and singing this song, and it sounds great in my head. God, yeah. Well, probably be mine first, so. (laughs) Belt it out loud. (laughs) Really lean into the crazy chest of me. (laughs) 
Again, I Danko doesn't have a bad voice, but that is laughably quavering <laughs> on that particular verse. <laughs> yeah. It's good. He sounds real fucked up. Yeah. Okay, we've gushed about this song enough. I'm sure everybody out there can agree. No notes. Perfect. Let's move on to the next song on the album. Side two, track one of the LP, We Can Talk. This is the kind of song that you start your album out with. That's so it's my good exact start note. It right? My exact note. <laughs> so start side two with it, which is cool. Yeah. You know? I would have started the album with this. And I am clearly worse at making these decisions the wrong. than the band is. But I would have started <laughs> right. the album with this. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I agree. And it also is very... It's like sing-songy. It kind of felt like it could be on Sesame Street to me. But I do still like it. I don't. I don't really mean that as a diss, but it is fairly lightweight. Dude, some of those songs are jams. Yeah, exactly. But then, but then, what always kept striking me when I would listen to it is that it's it feels kind of bouncy and lightweight, and they're just like riffing on these rhymes. And then Richard Manuel's chorus vocal comes in. He's like super gritty and intense, and just like throws me into a different world. Well, that's the thing is that I was thinking about the structure of this song. And it doesn't sound like verse chorus to me. It almost sounds like verse bridge, verse bridge, because that vocal comes in. It's such a different treatment. It seems like a departure. And then they kind of come back in with a, we can talk about it now. It's It didn't seem like a chorus. And I don't mind that it's not a chorus. I actually kind of like the way the song is structured. But I was like, if that's the chorus, that's not a chorus. That's a bridge. You just have three bridges in the song, basically. I think the call and response adds to the kind of, again, not childishness to it, but like you said, Rob, kind of like it could be a a Sesame Street song. You know, it's not super serious, but it kind of bobs along. But I dug it. Well, I heard that it was also some of their internal, they were taking some of the things they said to each other as friends. Their dialogue. And putting it right, into yeah. lyrics. And so there's some funny lines in there. I, I noted the, I'm afraid if you ever got a pat on the back, it would likely burst your lungs. Yes, I wrote that one down too. That's good. And talking about the hard panning again, I do think that the fact that they have the vocals panned to either side, but it's the voices trading off, makes it work really well. And it gives you that kind of bouncy feeling of one guy's in your right ear, then one guy's in your left ear. It's almost like you're sitting in between two friends and they're like and arguing <laughs> or talking back and forth and you're just kind of hearing it from both sides. I didn't even think about that. Like, yeah, like you're in the room while these guys are shouting back and forth. That is cool. Yeah. Again, just a fantastic song. It's a fun song. Like you said, Rob is lightweight. This isn't exactly making me cry or anything like that, but it's definitely getting me to move. And I was a big fan of it. If I'm being honest, though, this mode 
is kind of what I think of when I think of the band's aesthetic more. This kind of upbeat, loose still, the loose tightest. You know, like the weight, even though it is their most famous song, doesn't exactly sound to me like most of the rest of the material. Yeah, you're right. They always sound like they're the perfect amount of drunk. (laughs) Right, exactly, yes. Like just, they just hit that flow state of drunkenness (laughs) and you catch them in an hour and it's going to sound like shit, but right now it sounds fantastic. This was one of the songs that made me realize how much low end there was in this mix for 1968. I don't know if it was because this was remastered, but it's very beefy in the low end which is something I noticed throughout. I was just expecting, you know, mid to late 60s is still somewhat tinny. So this had a lot of low end that I appreciated. It's probably the remastering, but also maybe Danko just being an advocate for his own sound, which I think is where a lot of mixing mistakes happen. You allow too much power to be, you know, devolve into too few hands, and then all of a sudden you end up with drums that are louder than the vocals or something like that. So can we move on now? Can we finally move on, people? <laughs> I have enough to say about these goddamn songs. We're going to move on to This Wheels on Fire. If your memory serves you well, we're going to meet again and wait. So I'm going to unpack all my things and sit before episode of guess what tom's low point was this is it (laughs) and it's literally just because of the tone of that clavinet that's the whole reason is this the second to last song on the second side oh i think this is the second to last song hang on this week yes yes it is the second to last (laughs) it's the second to last song (laughs) okay we're seeing a pattern here folks i did not do that on purpose (laughs) all right but that clavinet sounds like it's trying to it, – it sounds like what they thought the future was going to be in the 50s, <laughs> and I, I don't like it at all. It just doesn't fit with this kind of acoustic-y Americana sound that they have. I didn't like it one bit. The song's pretty damn good, though. You cut that clavinet out. It's still a pretty good song. <laughs> the song is good. It was nice to hear a little more Danko. I do think him mostly as a background singer, not a lead singer, though. Like, he doesn't have a bad voice, but he has at least the third worst voice in the band. Yeah, I think that's fair. This felt like a 60s throwback. Even the chord progression kind of had like a one of those kind of psychedelic ultimate spinach kind of things going on. So it stuck out to me as kind of like a foot in the past versus everything they're doing on everything else feels like we're defining this sound. So, Or maybe a foot not far enough in the past because it doesn't sound like it's from the 1880s, which some of the other stuff sounds like. And that's that's the right, right. foot in the past. This is a foot three years ago. You're like, yeah, okay, I don't need that. But again, there's a good version of this song hidden in the band's presentation of this song. You could take this with different instrumentation 
and it would sound pretty damn good. I gotta say, great bones. Yeah, because the chord progression is actually pretty cool because it goes major for the chorus, and then it feels like they're changing keys at the end of each chorus, where they're saying they say this wheel shall explode, and it sounds like they're going up, and they wind up landing back on the start of the verse. So it's a little tricky the way they wrote the chord pattern, but it works really well. Yeah, I really just in general. <sighs> I really wish I could write songs like this. They're just so <laughs> smart. And they're not <laughs> yes songs. You know, it's not jazz. It's not prog. It's simple. It's one of the reasons why I love Carol King. I'm like, I know how to play all those same chords. Why can't I make them sound good like you do? Like, how do you just put them together in the right way to make them sound great? And, ah, damn, they really do nail it. All right, we are going to go on to the last song that we're going to talk about the last track on the album is the bob dylan penned i shall be released I just everything about this was tough for me just because it would have been so much better. Just drop everything in octave. Everybody's singing in their Mickey Mouse voice and it just kind of ruins it for me. I understand the the concept of the song is beautiful, but this this was not a low point for me, but this was definitely a nitpicky one for me. Oh, I totally disagree because I listened to a bunch of other versions of this exact song. And while I agree that it's almost painfully high. I think it just gives it this otherworldly haunting quality that none of the other versions have, including the Nina Simone version, which is cool in its own right. Oh, wow. Okay. But it's this one to me, I, and I have to say, this is just one of my favorite written songs of all time. I've kind of been on this one for a long time. I think it's one of Bob Dylan's best, which is saying something for me. I just really dig it. So I think the Richard Manuel vocal, he's kind of got that Neil Young ghost quality. Really sells it for me. Yeah, I got to say, this is a flawless song. And I do not agree at all that the vocal treatment is the wrong choice. It's interesting. It's (laughs) It's definitely a choice, but I think it's the right choice. And I have to agree with you, Rob. The way that these lyrics play out, they're amazing. They say everything can be replaced. They say every distance is not near. So I remember every face of every man who put me here. I, I love those lines. It's just like you're thinking about how you are who you are. And you're remembering all the people that made this tapestry that is you as a human. 
It's so good, and it's so haunting, and it's so sad, and this is a perfect album closer. They could not have put another song after this. Any song that came after this would have just been like, oh, well, that just seems tacked, tacked on. on. Yeah. Right, right. You had it. You had it. You had the closer. It was right there. I see my light come shining <laughs> from the west down to the east. Any day now, any day now I shall be released. It's talking about death. It's talking about releasing yourself from the baggage that you have that you're dragging around from your past. Well, now I got to go revisit this. All right. How long have you guys been listening to this song? <laughs> Way longer than a week, I assume. Three decades I've there known you go. this song. Okay. All right. And I really, like I said, I'm a huge Dylan fan, and I think he's just the best songwriter, but I really do think this is one of the best things he's written. And he just gave it to the band, which is amazing. Yeah, he's like, I got I got others. It's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Not stressing it. Because I have to say, as much as I do like Tears of Rage, I do think that the lyrics of Tears of Rage, in terms of a Bob Dylan-level fantastic lyric, I don't think that they're quite at the level of what I consider to be A-list Bob Dylan lyrics. These are A-list Bob Dylan lyrics. Far and away. Not that Tears of Rage is bad. Don't get me wrong. B-list Bob Dylan is fucking fantastic. But this is A-list Bob Dylan. Absolutely. And again, it's one of those ones It just, it evokes so much emotion. They're not talking about kids dying or death or anything like crazy. It's just poignant imagery that kind of gets you in this mode that you can freight your own baggage on top of it. You made me think of it, Tom, but you're right because it's a song about self-reflection and, you know, sometime and maybe a literal prison, including the prison of, of being a human being, I suppose. But to me, that self-reflective space that the song is coming from is such a vulnerable position for a human being to be in, let alone a human being actually in prison, that this fragile beauty of the vocal treatment feels right for the material, for that reason. Yeah, fragile is a great word for it, so. All right. You know, not to gang up on you, Adam, but come on, man. Come on. No, bro. no, no. I mean, again, <laughs> you guys have been listening to this tune a lot longer than I have. I was like, wait, it's about a prison? When I say I've been listening to it, I listened to it a long time ago, and then it's become one of the songs that I sing to myself when I'm just, it's in my short list of songs that I'll just, like, work through on an instrument sure. just to myself. Well, and that melody is pretty infectious. Like, I have definitely found myself just singing this melody at various times, just randomly. It just pops into my head. I'm like, oh, that's a good one. It's not quite an earworm. It doesn't have that sort of beginning of Daughter by Pearl Jam type of gets stuck in your head and it's annoying thing. Like, it, it is just a good, solid melody. It's fun to sing. Yeah, God, I love it. The chords are kind of funny because they just sort of climb up the mountain and then go back down. It's very weird chord progression. I mean, there is a sense of resolve because you land back on the one chord. But I don't think I've seen other songs. that I think it's like A, B, C sharp minor, B, and then back to A. But again, nothing crazy. They're just sort of playing through a couple of chords. And again, all you need is killer lyrics and killer harmony. And the chords don't really matter all that much. Now, good thing we didn't gush too much over this album. <laughs> Let's find out. If this one belongs on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die, I am going to throw it first over to Rob. Yes, it is an unmitigated, enthusiastic yes. You have to hear this band. We didn't really even get into all the influences that I think this band has had. but They've certainly influenced me and my musical tastes. 
and what it means to be in a band. I think this record and this band set a thousand ships a sail. They had a storied career after this. But you got to go back to the beginning. I think it's pure. I think it's great. Listen to it. Adam, let's hear it. Yeah, it's all right. No, this was <laughs> this was a great listen this week. Again, I've never listened to a full band album uh, from start to finish. And to start with the debut, I think, was the right move. And uh, it makes me a little sad that I don't know that I'll ever get to live through a period where like a new genre of music emerges, you know, like in, in our lifetime, what dubstep, you know what I mean? Like, like yeah, you know, some of the, it just, I don't know if it'll ever happen again. And to hear it on the tape happening and to kind of put yourself back in the mindset of this thing that's emerging is just super cool. So it's an obvious yes for me. Great album. Go listen to it. Well, I can do nothing but say that I agree. It was a fun listen. I was, it was unexpected. I was not expecting it. I was expecting a little bit of bone creep creek type of stuff. And then it was sad and it was poignant and it was, had good sounds on it. Like they really did a bunch of really cool sounds with the instrumentation that they had. Never once did I regret putting the album on and listen to it all the way through. Never once did I regret listening to the playlist. It's not that long of an album. It's, what is it, 42.22. So 42 minutes, that's about the perfect length of time for an album. And I'm not going to say it's a perfect album. Certainly not a perfect album, but it is an important album. It's a fun album. And you should definitely do yourselves a favor and go listen to it. So there you have it. Maybe one surviving member of the band. You're on the list. I think Garth Hudson might still be alive in addition to Robbie Robertson. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Danko died in 99. And uh, yeah, Hudson is still alive. Richard Manuel sadly committed suicide in the 80s. Yeah, 42 years old. So what do we have left to do? Well, there's just a few things to your listeners. First, I'm going to toss it on over to Rob. And he is going to meander his way on over to that old post office and See if anybody sent us some telegrams through the old Pony Express. Thank you, T-Funk. I will reach my hand in now, and we have a couple to read for you. One is from Nicholas. He writes, Just been listening to the Pavement podcast, and when you asked the guys about the song melody they stole in the first song, Silence Kid, I was almost shouting at the speakers about Every Day by Buddy Holly. I've never heard this Pavement album before, but when you played the first clip of the song, I instantly thought of that melody. I'm so glad you spotted it. It would have driven me crazy if no one had said anything. Vindication. You all said I was crazy. (laughs) Vindication. (laughs) That was for Tom. I read read that for Tom's uh, edification. (laughs) Nice. Tom was the one that caught that one. So fair enough. Thank you, Nicholas. And we have one more here. Stan writes, hey guys, checking in again about the irregularities with the Albinator. Recall this <laughs> oh, St- fellow Stan, our about, buddy uh, Stan, yes. <laughs> yeah, why we haven't uh, covered... I don't know, he did some kind of statistical analysis and told, told us that the Albinator needed to be tuned or something. I assume we're going to get to that any day now, Tom, to, uh, to uh, update the software. But anyway, he goes on to say, I very, very much enjoyed and was admittedly surprised by the Pavement episode. Surprised because... 
for re- some reasons, like for instance, your snark, your seeming dedication to musicianship, I figured you guys were going to have a field day with the band's slacker ethos and shall we say imprecise approach to recording and performances. Yes, shall we say that? Yes. Well, Stan, as it happens, Adam did have a field day with it. I, I did. Believe. Yes. <laughs> but nonetheless, you found a ton to appreciate, and I in turn appreciated hearing slightly younger people's opinions on the band. Some background. I attended university in Athens, Georgia in the 90s. I played in bands. I went to countless shows, was connected to the college radio station, and so had an early in to Pavement. They were indie kings for damn sure, and their debut was a huge album for me when it came out. And he goes on to cite some personal anecdotes about Pavement, but suffice to say he's a big Pavement fan, and he was pleasantly surprised by our take. See, you don't know in advance, audience, what we're going to think. You think you do. You think you do. You're probably right 95% of the time, but <laughs> but sometimes. So thank you, Stan. He closes out by saying, keep up the great work. You're one of my favorite podcasts. We appreciate you writing in with anything you want to tell us, whether we were wrong, whether we were right, whether we surprised you, whether we're the most predictable podcasters you could possibly fathom ever having listened to. We want to hear it all. Send it our way at 1001albumcomplaints at Gmail. All right. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to everyone who wrote in, and thank you to everyone who is listening to the end of this show where we are going to give our homework assignments. Let me bust out that Albinator. It is sipping on a jug of corn whiskey. It's just reached that perfect level of splishy, splashy drunkenness, and it's going to (laughs) come on over and tell me what we're going to listen to next week. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. We shall be listening to... The album is Nonstop Erotic Cafe, and the band is Soft Cell. No, oh, intrigued. This will be our first podcast of 2024, presaging what's to come in the new year. Yeah, that's a, that's, oh, you know what? That's also not the correct title. The Albinator has given me the wrong title. It is Nonstop Erotic Cabaret. Completely different feel. From a cafe. Completely different feel. <laughs> so, yeah. Seriously. Come on, Albany. Get really your shit that. together. <laughs> Maybe we really do need to do that software upgrade. <laughs> Good Lord. I own this on vinyl. What? No way. I don't know why I own this on vinyl, but I do own this on vinyl. <laughs> That's the biggest surprise of the year right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that this is a dollar bin. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Pain of love ain't bad. Maybe if I have an 80s party, I'll play that or something. Bust it out this week, baby. I have never listened to it. (laughs) I own it. It's never one time touched my turntable. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that should be an interesting week. I am a little scared. A little scared. Not going to lie to you, listeners. But I encourage you to come along on this journey of discovery with us. Listen to Nonstop Erotic Cabaret by Soft Cell. Certainly not a one-hit wonder. I'm going to guess that they have to be British if Dimery put them on the list as a one-hit wonder with a weird pseudo-cover song of two Motown songs mashed together. And we, again, appreciate you sticking with us to the end. For 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. And I'm Rob. Boo! Boo! You put the boosh right on me. (laughs) 